Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Previously on Truly the Goats, Three times nine hurlers of the Tour de Danon went out against three times nine hurlers of the Fear Bullocks, and they were beaten, and every one of them was killed. And that's just the first recorded match in the sport of hurling. How central are sports to Irish culture? Oh, they're still huge. Like, sport as a whole, I think, is it was definitely much grander in terms of Irish culture than just our own sports, but... The Irish game of hurling, crossed between hockey and murder. Hurling came to Ireland in about 500 BCE with the Celts. Like the Celts themselves, hurling settled in Ireland, leaving behind only traces on the European mainland. The first of the Anglo-Norman invaders arrived on Ireland's shores in May 1169. Thus began the bloody antagonism between the Irish and their colonizers, which would last throughout the rest of the second millennium. Then, there was statute number six. It is ordained and established that the commons of said land of Ireland do not henceforth use the plays which men call whorlings, with great sticks and a ball upon the ground. The statutes of Kilkenny, the statutes of Galway, these not only banned her, but also illegalized handball while proposing a British alternative. And the increasing popularity of cricket and other ball games in Britain Squire Colclough, our patriot, threw up the ball, and Dick Doyle from Marshallstown gave the first fall. Our men being trained in the hurling school, like a shot from a cannon, they sent the ball cool. In the middle of the 18th century, hurling was a very, very great game. Why did it decline? It declined because of 1798 and 1801, the Act of Union, the divorce between the people who made it and the tenantry who played it. The powers that be once again offered alternatives to Irish sports, especially hurling, like cricket, field hockey, and of course, football. Hurling had declined dramatically and was in danger of dying out completely. Certainly aware of the snowballing trend of standardizing sports, Michael Cusack began thinking of ways to again make viable the traditional Irish sports. No movement, having for its object the social and political advancement of a nation from the tyranny of imported and enforced customs and manners, can be regarded as perfect if it has not made adequate provision for the preservation and cultivation of the national pastimes of people. And now, the conclusion. In 1823, a seemingly innocuous, if confusing, event happened at a public school in Warwickshire, England, that would change the history of world sports as we know them forever. It was a eureka epiphany, a why-didn't-I-think-of-that moment. As a memorial plaque at the school informs today, a 16-year-old lad named 
William Webb Ellis, quote, with a fine disregard for the rules of football as played in his time, first took the ball in his arms and ran with it, thus originating the distinctive feature of the rugby game. The location was, of course, rugby school. And, as those who have heard recent episodes of True the Notes know, the origin story is, of course, pure fiction. In this case, the story appears to have been fabricated by a historian under various pressures to date the sport's origin in 1876. The truth is that, with rare exceptions like basketball and professional rodeo, most sports do not have a clear origin point. As messy as the reality may be, sports like baseball, hockey, and basically every game branching off the football family tree evolved gradually over time for centuries to millennia, and most were played with these rules variable enough so that, as we see from the Webb Ellis story, whether a player could run with the ball in hand was up for grabs. Then there's Gaelic football. Gaelic football is a sport whose governing organization, the Gaelic Athletic Association, existed before the game itself. It's a sport created as part of Ireland's cultural revival, a deliberate response to the ongoing attempted cultural colonization. Just as for 800 years, the British Crown could not stop its subjects in Ireland from enjoying hurling, so too did the Irish people's leaders realize that preventing even ardent patriots from playing organized soccer or rugby was futile. Instead, they made their own game. As Michael Q said, soon thereafter a GAA co-founder had written in 1884, no movement having for its object the social and political advancement of a nation from the tyranny of imported and enforced customs and manners can be regarded as perfect if it has not made adequate provision for the preservation and cultivation of the national pastimes of the people. Voluntary neglect of such pastimes is a sure sign of national decay. The strength and energy of a race are largely dependent on the national pastimes for the development of a spirit of courage and endurance. A warlike race is ever fond of games requiring skill, strength, and staying power. But when a race is declining in martial spirit, no matter from what cause, the national games are neglected at first and then forgotten. In January 1885, the GAA released standardized rules, 12 for its ancient sport and 10 for the brand new Irish version of football. Early on, the sport thrived on the auspices of the GAA and its mission. Clubs were based locally, local talent was developed through a European club-like system, and the athletes maintained amateur status. For a century and a quarter, the Irish national sports have maintained their popularity, traditions, and even economics through uprising and suppression, through depression and world wars, through technological advancement and internationalism. Thanks to the unique interorganization of Irish sports, the phrase dual player was coined in Ireland before countries like the US and Canada had more than one national sports league. The term naturally referred to the player who excelled in Ireland's two very different national sports. But the foundation of the Irish sports, organized as cultural self-defense, may be buckling somewhat in the 21st century as certain tendencies of North American sport and big European soccer leagues encroach on even the most fiercely national pastimes worldwide. Gaelic football is no exception. On the pitch, defenses become more sophisticated, training machines more regimented, and the game just more complex in general. Off the pitch, large market clubs are tending to dominate. Attendance, and therefore revenue, is down. 
Amateur status is ever more challenging to maintain, and playing at the top level requires 365-day years devotion to a single sport. Put simply, that uniquely Irish sports goat, the dual star of hurling Gaelic football, may be, dare we say, history. My name is Oz Davis, and this is Truly the Goats. Sports history as told through its superstars. In episode 12 of Truly the Goats, I had intended to explore the stories of some of Ireland's great dual stars. Unfortunately, I was sidetracked, absorbed in 3,000 plus years of myth and hurling history to do that. So, I left the material on Gaelic football and dual stars for this episode. So without further ado then, Are you ready for Gaelic football? What makes Gaelic football Gaelic football? Well, it's got two things in common on hurling, which come in handy okay. first off. The pitch is the exact same right. size. Uh, and Actually, three things. The, the scoring is identical. Uh, and uh, the number of players is the same. It's 15 a side, which I've always assumed was a practical thing because like the same people ran both sports and I figured you use the same pitch right, and the same score. Right, right. <laughs> same players. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's like, so it's 15 players a side. Like, and again, you know, you got goals, you got points, and a goal is worth three of those. Uh, it was at one point a goal is worth like infinite points. Then it was reduced to five. Then it was reduced to three. And that was like over a century ago. And we still got three for over a century now. Uh, you know, there was a point where like a goal was infinite points, which, you know, basically just led to goalkeepers getting like battered over the goal with the line. Cause, uh, but again, it's, it's a very physical game. So the idea is sort of, you know, you can kick the ball with, with your feet or with your hands from your hands. Most people will aim to do it with their hands. You can pass the ball with a, with sort of, you know, uh, a, f- a closed fist or an open hand, but it's got to be a striking action. So you can't throw it like a basketball is what I'm trying to say. Oh. And the idea is to, you know, get the ball up the field to score in your, uh, in your opponent's end. Uh, and the idea, obviously, is, like, you know, sort of that's very hard because most teams are really good at defending and stopping you getting there. So that would be a much lower scoring event game than hurling. It would still have a lot of scoring events, but, say, the weather actually has a huge impact on scoring events in Gaelic football compared to uh, hurling. So in hurling, you'll still have crazy high scores, you know, by and large, unless the weather is utterly abysmal. Like, we know as a Gaelic football, sort of, you know, bit of rain and even like a harder pitch it'll drop it so like you know good Gaelic football match will have about 30 to 35 scoring events but in the winter a game could be great and it still might only have 25 mm-hmm. scoring events uh just because like you know it's just so much harder to move that ball uh you know the, 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 the also the elements frankly affect the ball more when it's being kicked in the air uh because you know it's going at a slower speed so it's not like you know dealing with the wind as bad as well as well as say a slitter was so that, that that's a huge impact but the idea is sort of you, you you can't just like run with it like a rugby ball. So you've got to like every four steps, you've got to either bounce it or you got to, you know, uh, hop it on your foot. And uh, naturally, people can do things to you while this is the case. So you try to like move the ball from player to player more than do that. Although some guys, if you get open field, you're just going to run and try and do that. That's Emmett Ryan, sports writer and career journalist currently working for the Business Post of Dublin. He guessed it in episode 12 of True of the Goats. And as it turns out, this one as well. We'll also be hearing from Michael Foley. More on Michael shortly, but first, I've got to give a shout-out to Keon Murphy of the GAA. At a point when Ireland was still in close to lockdown conditions due to COVID, Keon connected me to Mike, and so, eternal thanks. I'll even use Keon's own notes in introducing Michael. Michael Foley is an award-winning author and journalist who has written extensively on the GAA and is also a very valued member of the GAA's history 
and Commemorations Committee, was the driving force behind the GAA's Bloody Sunday commemorations. He is also of good Rebel County stock, which leaves him well-placed to talk about Teddy McCarthy. Well, I'll be talking about Teddy McCarthy, as well as another contender for GOAT Dual Star during an unthinkable experience on Bloody Sunday later on in this show. But first, a few basics for a noob like myself. In your estimation, what sort of role does sport play in Irish culture in general? Yeah, it's a great question. I think over the years, because we're such a relatively young country, I mean, you know, the Republic of Ireland, you know, won't be 100 years old for another for, for another 12 months. Uh, and obviously there's a 32-county version as well. So, I mean, in that sense, I suppose it's helped to form identity. It's much like any other country, I guess. It's, it's helped to form identities. Um, in the case of something like Gaelic games, for example, the indigenous sports of hurling and Gaelic football, those in particular, when they were when the GAA was formed in 1884 and coming forward, really helped to form communities and pull pull communities together. So, like you had a local team that you could root for, which would not have been the case previous to that. And if we think of the, the time that the GAA would have been would have been formed, we're, we're not even 40 years after the Great Famine. So Ireland, in terms of its own self-esteem itself worse of the people who were living in Ireland at that time would have been quite low. So to have something like that, something local, something to root for and something to make them feel good, is really, really, really important. I mean, we see it coming up through the years then if we if we move on, like even to the to the 80s, when the Irish soccer team began qualifying for major tournaments, they made the European Championships in 1988. They made their very first World Cup in 1990 in Italy. That had a huge a positive effect as well on the self-esteem of a country that was going through a really crippling recession at the time, immigration, absolutely leaking people to all four corners of the globe. It was a moment, again, of bringing people back together and giving people a sense of worth about the place they were from. Um, so in that regard, it's played a huge role. And also, I suppose, just going back to the GA again, again, around the time of the founding of the state, first 10, 15 years going into the 20s, into the 30s, again, depressed time and very much the GAA and other sporting organizations would really have provided, I suppose, the community network, the social fabric and the infrastructure. I mean, a lot, an awful lot of, um, I mean, for example, again, I'll go back to the GAA. I see we've gone back to that a lot already, but we could, we could say the same for soccer and rugby. These are not municipal local government grounds. These are grounds that were built by the organizations or by local clubs themselves through dint of, yes, public money, but also money donated by their members and local people. So again, in the absence of that, I suppose, government investment in sport, traditionally, mm. sports organizations provided that framework and provided people with the opportunity to invest in sport and to develop it along. So, I mean, it has a, a load of different sort of um, strands to it. Probably not unlike any other country, I suppose, when you boil it all down. But that's, I, I suppose, the fact that they have, we have these indigenous games that aren't really, I mean, they are played around the world but they're not played at a hugely high level outside of Ireland. So that those in themselves, um, those two, those particularly football and hurling, have a different sort of a sense uh, in terms of their connection to the country. And, and that sense of, uh, I suppose, because they were born out of a sense of trying to be distinctly different and to create a, a sense of self-identity, they have a different feel around them, perhaps, maybe than other sports that you might find more globally sports, I suppose, that you'll find around the world. This is what it feels like to me with Gaelic football is, you know, in the late uh, 19th century, there's a there's, there's rush to organize sports, to codify sports. But Gaelic football 
the, the GAA very distinctly made it almost a nationalistic game. Like, for example, you play it on the hurling pitch, you know, which is the Irish game. And, and that almost made it so that this game had to be nationalistic. It was almost like an island unto itself. It feels to me like the GAA did it on purpose to be a nationalistic sport. Well, there's no, I don't think there's any doubt about it. Um, I mean, when you think of, again, you know, you mentioned it there. I mean, the, the context of the time, as well as an awful lot of codification of sport going on, um, particularly in the British Isles, particularly in Britain, and also amateurism as well as it was becoming a thing. You know, the idea of a Corinthian approach to sport, public school, sort of uh, service type of idea coming from Britain, which didn't, it caught on in Ireland, but not quite in the same way. But anyway, that's another story. In terms of the GAA and the creation of Gaelic football, you're quite right. Like hurling was a game that's reputed to have existed for thousands of years and it was codified and it was it was it was turned into the the beginning of the evolution of the game we know now. Gaelic football was pretty much a creation. There was always forms of of football played in Ireland. But when it came to actually creating a game, absolutely. The idea was that, yes, we wanted to have the rough and tumble element that traditional games of football in Ireland would have had. But it's not rugby. And it's not soccer. There's no offside rule. There's nothing like that. They can handle the ball. It's not even Aussie rules. It's not even Aussie rules. I don't suppose that there's any agreement on the greatest of all time argument in these sports. Is there? Well, so Gaelic football, there's definitely a lot of argument over. Gaelic football is a way harder question because I'm even trying to think like, you know, loads of people would argue like, most people would immediately come up with like four or five names who they would consider in the pantheon, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, but like, I, I suppose some people might argue Pat Spallan, but even then, you know, I think most of them, almost all of those are the straightaway go, but he's also, you got this guy and this guy and this guy. Pat Spallan was a carry player of the 70s and 80s, but I'm kind of going, well, yeah, but like, I've seen players better than him. Like, I, another carry player I was, the best I ever saw as a player, say, as, as a sort of a contemporary, sorry, obviously I wasn't any good, uh, was uh, Colin Cooper from Kerry. Uh, and he was also brilliant. But like, there's a guy playing for Dublin now, Brian Fenton, who's been an extraordinary dominant force through this Dublin run. And like right now, he looks like the greatest of all time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, it's like I suppose it it, it, it helps it helps him that like you know, well, it hurts him. Sorry that he's he's seen so much in that he's seen in a team that's just kicking ass every every day, and it's like you know they're grinding teams to pieces. Like you know they're so good. Whereas some of those Spillane and Cooper carry teams did as well, but Cooper was looking that he had more competitive you know situations around him. Uh, like his team had to fight for a few more. Their all Lawrence and Dublin did. Whereas Spillane benefited a lot from people would just read or listen to him on the radio being good rather than actually see because there wasn't as many games on TV back then. So, yeah, okay, football, I'd say it's very sick to say there's no unanimous golden game with football, whereas in hurling, it's sort of the, it's just presumed as Christy Ring, even though, like, the vast majority of people alive today never saw him play a game in their lives. Am I to take it that this question of the greatest all-time footballer in Ireland is unsettled? Well, I think when we were chatting, we were talking in the context of a dual player, a player who plays football... Right. If we're talking about the greatest football player of all time, well, now that's a whole other, that's a whole other kettle of guacamole right there. Like, I mean, we're, <laughs> I mean, we're living right now in Ireland. We're living through an unprecedented era of dominance in Gaelic football, and that would be Dublin. And on that team alone, there is probably two or three players now who you would, who are already, while they're playing, are in the argument for possibly being the greatest players of all time. So I'm not about to jump into a debate on a sport about which I know next to nothing. So let's talk some GOAT dual stars. 
Michael told me of two Irish athletes, also known as full-on historical figures. The first, chronologically. My favourite one of all is Frank Burke from Dublin. Frank Burke, um, way, way back in the, in the early 20th century, he was involved in the Easter Rising. He went to school. If people have any, have any kind of sort of awareness of Irish history, the Easter Rising, Patrick Pierce was the, was the main leader of the 1916 Rising. Pierce was a teacher in a school in Dublin. And Burke would have gone to school in Pierce's school. He was inducted into the Irish Volunteers by Pierce. Pierce gave him his rifle. And when it came to the Easter Rising of 1916, which was kind of a week long around Easter uh, in the middle of Dublin, um, Frank Burke went to the GPO in the middle of Dublin and he was there for the whole week. He was taken to pretty, was, they lo- obviously they lost, uh, they were defeated. He went, he was taken to prison in Britain. He was let out after a year. He came back and he won an All-Ireland Hurling medal with Dublin that year. Three years later, he was playing football for Dublin on Bloody Sunday in 1920 when 14 people were killed in Crow Park by British uh, policemen who went there after, after 14 uh, British spies had been killed that morning and 14 people were killed in Crow Park. And Frank Burke was playing that day. He was actually marked by a Tipperary player who was killed on the day, uh, Michael Hogan, after whom the Hogan stand is named in Crow Park. I'm interrupting Mike here re-emphasize what you just heard. The Tipperary player tasked with defending Frankfurt was shot on the pitch. As an eyewitness put it in the AIG short documentary, Frank Burke playing for Dublin and fighting for Ireland. And so they went out on the pitch and he was delighted to find that his opponent was Mick Hogan, whom he knew. And they had been at the K-League a couple of weeks before hunting together. And suddenly the ball came across the field diagonal pass across the field or whatever you like to call it nowadays but he ran for the ball he said he's just about to catch the ball when the shooting started and he thought they were blanks but then he saw the pandemonium and the stands and the you know, people running all over the place he realised it was uh, real bullets and they threw themselves flat on the ground and started crawling as best they could towards the to, sort of towards head 16 uh, there's a cycle track around Croke Park and a small wall and they thought, as Hogan said, if they could get behind that wall they might get some shelter. And next second they said, thank God I'm shot. And the hub was beside him. And they heard him say that. He said, I think he meant, God, thank I'm shot. And then dastard open called for a priest. And some priest came in from spectators to attend to him. And I got out, there was a lull there, and he got out onto, onto Hill 16, and he was confronted by a black and tan who stuck a gun into his stomach. Uh, two of them, two towns came, and they searched the pockets of the players and um, took what they could get out of it, and then told them to dress and get out. But Burke went on then to win more All-Ireland medals in football with Dublin, and he is, he is considered, even though obviously we're 100 years away now, but he's... I, I think his memory has been sort of regathered in the last few years, and he is, he will be considered among the greatest forwards of all time. But what an extraordinary life around playing hurling and football. Then there's a guy who participated in rugby, soccer, swimming, and handball, but liked the Irish sports more, not to mention another sport of competition even more than that. Jack Lynch, another great Cork Jewel player in the 40s and the 30s, won All-Ireland medals in both hurling and football. He went on to become the Taoiseach of the country, the Prime Minister of the country. In a retrospective piece on Lynch in 2015, Dublin-based website Newstalk.com stated in part, 
described as the reluctant Tisich, he was later referred to as the real Tisich, and the opposition leader Liam Cosgrove claimed he was the most popular politician since Daniel O'Connell. Lynch's final stats, five All-Irelands in hurling, one All-Ireland in football, eight years, nine months as leader of his country, a solid chapter of two in Irish history. Let's talk Teddy McCarthy, essentially the Irish equivalent of Bo Jackson. McCarthy was the nearly unnaturally gifted athlete who starred for Cork County curling and football teams from 1985 to 96, winning two All-Ireland championships in each sport. A few dual players through the years have won more than a cumulative four titles, among them Frank Burke, Jack Lynch, and Michael's own personal favorite, Jimmy Barry Murphy. But McCarthy's iconic status in Irish sport is likely cemented forever, as his most singular achievement, due to the changing nature of the game itself, will literally never be matched. Teddy McCarthy, famous for winning All-Ireland medals in hurling and football in the one season, which has He's the only player in the history of the game ever to have done it. Teddy McCarthy was, again, he's like one of the last great dual players. And the, the, the schedule required, because remember, all these people have jobs. That's a key thing to bear in mind. And so you're trying to manage inter-county training and club training in some cases, although during the inter-county training season, people assume you're not going to be seeing that club stuff too much, you know? They uh, have to, like, fit both those in. And as the sports have become more and more professionalized, despite the players being amateur, you don't really see anyone play both sports for their county anymore that much at all, sadly. But Teddy's one of the last greats. In that context, Teddy stands out, like, as the, obviously the most decorated dual, well, not the most decorated dual player, but the most distinctively decorated dual player for having achieved that. Because we see it all over the world in sports. How is the effect of the 12-month season in Irish sports? Is that happening where you must focus on one sport to the exclusion of the rest? At elite level for, I would say, probably the last decade now, it's become completely impossible to do both. If you're a top level player, it largely does. Like, I think we're looking sort of in sort of the way sports are so seasonal over here. Actually, first, America is very seasonal in how it does the sports. But like the commitment in terms of the, you know, the, there is not, not much of an off season because especially with the, the club aspect I've mentioned so much, if you're playing at a county, basically your club season starts like, you know, two weeks after as in, your club has been playing matches the whole time, but they've been like lower level, you know, competitions. But your club serious games start basically two weeks after your competition in the inter-county ends. That's another brutal slog to try and win the county title, which is a big deal for your community. And then if you win your county title, you try and win your provincial title for clubs. And then there's an all-iron title for clubs as well. So, you know, if you're like, you know, a, a player at a high level and you might often say stay playing dual at club while playing inter-county at one, uh, you know, you will comfortably have a 12-month year doing it. Keep in mind, we are talking about amateur sport here, but still the professionalization of amateur sport and amateur prep, uh, or prep for amateur sport, I should say, it, it, it leaves no space. So you'd like take Teddy, for example, now in 1990, right? So Teddy was playing for Cork football and Cork hurling. Uh, he could pick and choose which training session he went to. Okay, so he he see, he he largely went with the hurlers. Got asked Teddy this himself. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna take an educated guess that the like the physical training for football will be a lot more arduous than hurling. Hurling is all a real touch game, and if you've got decent fitness, it's all about your touch then. So he would have he would have kind of gravitated towards the hurlers more. However, he also had an, an ankle injury during that summer. So, for example, he missed again in hurling and football. You have to win your provincial title to go forward to the All Ireland semi final and right. then to the final. So, 
Cork had Munster finals in football and hurling. Teddy missed both of them with this ankle injury that he picked up. So he missed a bit of game time there. He came on in the All-Ireland hurling semi-final. Didn't play particularly well. Got chewed out of it a little bit for not playing well. There was question marks over whether he'd start uh, either final. But he had that sort of charisma and that kind of personality. That, and he had aggression. And he was an amazing fielder of the ball as well. Incredible. And I mean, when I'm talking about catching a ball and hurling, I mean, we're talking about no helmet, no shin pads, Hurley's flying in the air, and I, can, I saw him many, many times at matches, leaping and landing on the top of the shoulders of the guy in front of him and catching the ball out of the sky and coming down. It had a huge lifting effect. And this was a time when both hurling and football, particularly hurling, was a very instinctive game. You got the ball and you let it go. You just let it go. This is all getting to the point that I'm going to make. You forward on 30 years, the game has changed. The very same as every other, so many sports now, it's become more possession-based. Football and hurling have become more possession-based. It's become more scientific. And defenses are a lot more complex. There you have it now. Yeah. And so now, whereas hurling and football were once very much position-based, you had 15 players in a grid position, in, in a 15-grid, you know, six backs, two midfielders, six forwards. Everyone had their markers. There might be little tactical deviations here and there, but that was essentially it. You won your battle, and you got the ball away from yourself. And, you know, there was a bit of possession play in it, but by and large, it, the game rolled along like in that way. Now, Gaelic football, for example, you'll have 15 men back and they'll, you know, they'll defend on mass and they'll attack on mass. That requires huge physical strength, stamina, mental agility, multifaceted skill base. I mean, it's not just enough to be a, a back, a defender and a good defender. You need to be able to kick the ball over a bar if you get the ball 20 yards from the other goal. So all of these things add into the reality that at the very highest level, the dual player is really an, an extinct uh, creature now. And also the fact that there has been a push to create more games in both hurling and football at elite level to justify the amount of training that amateur players are, 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 are undertaking. So again, again, back in Teddy's time, it was straight knockout. You played your first game in the hurling championship and you got knocked out, you were gone. You lost it, you were gone. You could go play football all summer. Whereas now, there's all sorts of factors. Now, okay, we're living in a COVID world at the moment, so they've gone back to knockout for football just for this year alone. But in normal times, the knockout has been gone now for over for near, uh, 20 years now. So it's different. It's just completely different. And it's beginning to percolate down now to the club level, the next level, the senior club level, which is the level below your inter-county elites. And it's even beginning to percolate down even lower, mainly because of fixture clashes and... Just the general sort of um, too much damn training, really. You know. All right, just one final question: How is the future of these sports, seeing as how they're amateur? I'm sure that a guy like McCarthy will never have to buy a, a drink in a pub again. But how do I mean? How do amateur athletes survive given? The 24-7, 365 spin of these sports. I mean, how do they make it? With great difficulty. <laughs> like the GAA is a very unique organization in that sense. I mean, relatively speaking, proportionally speaking. Obviously, it's a tiny organization. I often, when guys get excited about hurling football, I often kind of remind them, look, there are two fringe sports in a, on a small island on the edge of Western Europe. You know, we don't need to get too excited about it. There's 10 billion people in China that doesn't even know this is happening or whatever. A billion people in China <laughs> don't even know this is going on. So, you know, relax. Enjoy your day out. Buy an ice cream, you know. But um, I suppose the GA, proportionally speaking, though, 
there are not many sporting organizations within a country and the GA is the number one preeminent biggest sporting organization in Ireland, 32 county, the entire island, that are amateur, that are not do not have any professional aspect to it at all. How how are they managing? How are they surviving? Well, in the last, particularly in the last 20 years, there has been a kind of a, a, a move to sort of, well, what does amateur mean in the 21st century? Mm. How, how can we sort of make this practical? So, for example, at the highest level, again, at the elite level, players are now allowed to um, do commercial deals, do marketing deals, you know, mm-hmm. sell their image, do ads, get money for that, drive sponsored cars, um, do mm-hmm. media spots, and they're paid for the media spot, right? That has had a couple of effects. I mean, one thing, I, I suppose, in a sense, is that from a media point of view, it's made them more distant than what they were previous to this. Guys you know, lived among us in the community. And if you wanted to call a guy, you call him and he was there. Whereas now there's buffers. There's yeah. there's agents and there's PR companies and there's handlers and there's there's all the all the trappings of professional sports. The other, I suppose, major development was the creation of a players union, uh, the Gaelic Players Association, which is again for the inter-county elites. I'll talk about the club guys in a minute, but they, they, at the inter-county elites. So they're looking after them. They're making sure that they're getting mileage expenses, that the gear, they're, they're getting their gear, they're getting meals after training, that they're not losing out on anything. Mm-hmm. They would have they would also run, um, you know, self-development courses. They would help guys in terms of scholarships for college. They would help them in terms of managing their life, their mental health. All these things are there now. So there is a support network. And you would like I mean, you, you, you talk you talk to so many guys who have retired and they say, geez, you know, I feel like I'm out of the bubble. No, you know, and these are amateur guys. They're going, there's not meant to be any bubble but there is a bubble you know there is a bubble and they are kept back and they are protected to some degree not to the degree of your your millionaire sports person i would i would suggest but it's the same idea i in terms of the club guys there will be a sense that because of all of this that there has a a kind of a disconnect occurred because the inter-county game the top end it's so vital to the gaa in terms of revenue and tv money and commercial its commercial value is immense also, like in, compared to American sports and com- compared to British sports, I mean, we look at the Premier League at soccer, like gate revenue, people coming through the turnstiles is not important anymore, right? It's not important to professional sports. I don't, well, certainly not in soccer, it's not. Pre- Premier League could play in front of empty stadia every week, it wouldn't make a damn of a difference to them as long as they get their TV money. GA, totally different. 49% of annual revenue comes through the gates. So they need. They need games and they need inter-county to be a big fish. So there is a disconnect between that and the club guy. Club guy, and I'm talking about the club guy, I'm talking about the guy who goes down to his local field and there's 12 people watching the game. And the guy who plays for Cork, for example, in an All-Ireland final will, a couple of weeks later, be on that same field with that guy playing in front of 12 people. But there's a, there a gap. There's a gap. And that is something that the GA wrestles with all the time. But the idea, I mean, it's, 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 been a, it's been a conversation for probably 40, 50 years now in the GA. Professionalism well, is going to go professional. Does the creation of players' union dictate there's going to be a professional game? Again, I go back to, it's two fringe sports on the edge of Western Europe. <laughs> like the TV deal at the moment, the TV deal for football and hurling is just over 55 million quid over, I think it's five years. Right? Wow. I mean, that's, like, wow. it's, it's not a lot, really, wow. you know, yeah. 
That's it's not, not a lot. Yeah. So I mean, how do you how do you create how do you create a professional league based on two indigenous sports that really, with the best will in the world, I mean, pockets of people in America know about it, pockets of people in the UK know about it, but they're largely Irish communities or people who have connections with the Irish community who know about it. And they go, oh, this game is great. I mean, you go to New York. I mean, New York have team. Like, like there was a New York senior team is very, very close to being entirely New Yorkers now. But like, what does that mean? Like, you know, it's not it's not enough of a base to create a profession, in my opinion. They would have to completely tear up the entire thing. It would have to go a little bit like American football. There would have to be franchises. There would have to be, certainly there would have to be salary caps. And there would have to be all sorts of mechanisms whereby the competition would be kept even. And you would be absolutely, well, certainly for someone like me, you would be tearing the roots out of the GAA in terms of what we know it to be. It would be completely disconnected from what we know it to be. And I think it would be a, a, a really damaging thing to happen. To, to, to the organization because it does go beyond sport it's it's a really it's a really community thing um, but it, it, that wouldn't exist anymore if it went to play Teddy McCarthy greatest dual player of all time much as I'd hate to rook Frank Burke out of the honor it's quite positive after all McCarthy managed to start two sports requiring highly divergent skills in the modern era of refined training fitness and pre-game preparation for highly sophisticated defenses. And he's unquestionably the last of the classic dual player breed. Then again, there is another philosophy regarding sports goatdom altogether. I suppose in Ireland, the bigger debate is really who's our best athlete of all time, and that comes down to a soccer player or a runner or a boxer type thing. And I'm mm-hmm. like, I don't really care. I just care if they're the best at what they do, like, you know, which I know makes me less fun in a pub. But, you know, it's, it's like, I, I don't get too, too wound up over it. Like, to me, the greatest of all time thing, it's like, it's a bit of crack, but if you take it too seriously, like, you know, it's like, enjoy the greatest of your time if you can, is what I always say for sure. Well, I don't know if I'd go that far. This has been Truly the Goats, a Sports History Network podcast. Find us online, visit trulythegoats.com. On Twitter and Facebook, we're at trulythegoats. For more like minded shows, be sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com. Like the man says, it's your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. Truly the Goats thanks our guest for this episode, Michael Foley of the Sunday Times, and Emmett Ryan of the Business Post. Shortly after the release of this episode, check out the Truly the Goats feed for the full unexpurgated interviews with each. And thanks again to Keon Murphy of the Gaelic Athletic Association for connecting TGG with Mike. Additional voice work for this episode was by Fergal Casey. The Truly the Goats theme song is Fun on Street, greatest remix of all time, and is produced by David Liso of Dynamo Stairs. Music used in this episode includes The Land of Luck by Spectacular Sound Productions, Gravel Walk by the Rosen Sisters, Roads That Burned Our Boots by Jazar, and This Ain't House by Simon Matthewson. All tracks are available through fair use agreement via freemusicarchive.org. This is Oz Davis for Truly the Goats and the Sports History Network saying, Always always perspective, 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 perspective.
it's not, it's not like sort of, you know, say, uh, basketball where people get, you know, argumentative over the LeBron versus Jordan thing, uh, where you and I both know it's Brian Scalabrini is the greatest basketball player of all time. <laughs> hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude. And I hope that you enjoyed this recent episode presented by the Sports History Network and were able to learn some good old-fashioned sports history knowledge nuggets. I started the Sports History Network back in 2020 with the mission to help podcasters find a community of like-minded sports history nerds as well as helping aspiring podcasters to start their own shows. We have a little bit over 30 shows on the network right now covering all sorts of sports history, but as far as I'm concerned... We're just at the toothpick in the ocean moment, you know, that can't even figure it out because there's so much more coming. We wanted to create the ultimate headquarters for sports yesteryear, starting with Podcast Network and our website, but we're going to continue to move into other mediums as well. And here's the cool part, because we want you to be part of our team. So if you're interested in starting your own podcast, or maybe being a guest on one of our shows, or who knows, maybe even writing an article for us over on the website, seriously, all you got to do is reach out to us on the contact page over at Sports. HistoryNetwork.com. You can be as technologically savvy as a Neanderthal tapping on a stone trying to figure out this whole hieroglyphics thing back in the day. Again, it doesn't matter because even if you don't understand the whole podcast space, we have a production team that can pretty much help you out with doing everything. All you got to do, head over to SportsHistoryNetwork.com, head to the contact page, fill it out. That message goes right to me and I'll reach out to you as soon as I can. But for now, dude, I'm through if you're through.